0: Welcome to Direction Correct, a people's podcast with Colin Scott. Today's guest, Daniel Schmerle.
1: Thanks to our sponsors, Orgnostic. Fast-track the insights behind your people data using Orgnostic by connecting all your HR data in one people analytics platform. Quickly uncover the insights you need to measure the success of your people initiatives. Orgnostic is the most innovative people analytics Generative AI, data orchestration, and employee listening tool on the market. To learn more, book a demo at orgnostic.com/slash directionally correct.
0: Are there any movies that like you 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 need to see but you haven't seen? Here, oh, well, while you're thinking, uh, like Casablanca, never seen it. Uh, oh yeah, Bond with the wind. Oh um, yeah, that's an investment too. Is that's it? A, I think so. I think it's a long one. Is it? I, I mean, I feel like all
1: movies are long now. I, I, by the way, I went and saw Oppenheimer. I feel like the thing was freaking four hours long in the theater.
0: Isn't it three and a half solid?
1: Yeah, I mean, it was like a – but you, you include the previews because, again, I haven't gone to see a movie in a theater in forever. Yeah. I mean, you include the previews. It's a solid four hours and 15 minutes.
0: Oh, that's an investment, man. Like – yeah. I think what I hate the most about going to the movie theater is like you walk in, like eating your popcorn, you know, have enjoying the movie, all this sort of stuff, and you walk outside. It's like now it's nighttime, or like the sun mm-hmm. is like everything is different. Like, did I just waste, you know, the entire day in this room?
1: <laughs> I went to a matinee and I got out, and it was like sun blistering on my face in 110 <laughs> degrees. <laughs> like, wow, like, welcome yeah. to hell,
0: you know, welcome out of this nice cool movie theater uh, yeah. i'm actually like not to give too much away Like, me date this pod too much but i'm gonna go see the barbie movie uh sunday go check it yeah. out we we can compare notes they're probably the same movie you know i mean
1: they it's tomato tomato right yeah,
0: yeah. Uh, hey there. What's up, Daniel?
1: danielson what's happening good to see you again man you too how's it going
0: yeah last time i saw you too we were like randomly met up at psyop in that weird like foyer and uh you you two look like freaking offensive linemen together
1: yeah that was a late in life addition for me i was always skinny growing up not
0: any longer no way
1: yeah when i was in high school i was like six foot one
0: 145 six one 145 okay yeah that that's that's skinny holy cow yeah now yeah i've been
2: like this since uh since grad school
0: grad school yeah it'll do that to you grad school will do it to you it's not just like the aging process but just like the bad eating and the stress eating the regular eating (laughs) all all the eating
1: yeah yeah. we've talked about on the podcast before it was going to doghouse like every night because i lived across the street from there and just you know having a burger and a beer like that'll put on some pack on some weight really fast
0: i you you give me flashbacks like actually I started like losing weight like crazy i guess like your brain just uses so many calories especially like, during comprehensive exams i was eating the full pizza a day and like losing weight like just shedding pounds just cuz all the brain power being used definitely not moving around that much just right 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 you know
1: dude yours and my brains must function very differently
0: <laughs> I,
1: i've never lost weight from using my brain I think that probably says a lot about me.
2: (laughs) Yeah, I'm with Cole on this one. I don't don't think my brain operates
0: that (laughs) It's I guess there's like uh, some sort of like uh, Cole just saw Oppenheimer. So maybe there's some like uh, extra energy being wasted there in my brain. You guys are just like too focused. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's like one of those movies where I realized
1: like if you didn't watch it in a movie theater it would probably not be very good because, like, if I was Mm. just watching at home, there's a lot of, like, quiet parts where it's, like, hey, what's it going? It's, like, (laughs) like, really low. And, like, at home, I I can't understand what they're saying. And, like, this movie is so freaking boring. But, like, in a theater, like, you're really encapsulated by what's going on. Well, that's what the
0: subtitles are for. (laughs) Subtitles. Yeah, true. Oh, yeah. Well, that's that's a good
1: question I actually have for you. Are you... A subtitle on or a subtitle off watching TV at home person. Because I find that there's, this is like a, a thing that I've recently stumbled into.
2: That it is like, division Apparently, line.
1: there's like a whole community of subtitle on people.
2: So uh, my wife and I are on opposite ends of that spectrum. Oh, no. Um, definitely creates some friction. I can't handle it because I, I will always read them yep. and read the head of the line getting delivered. I don't refer back to them if I didn't hear a line. And so, so much in acting is, is about the delivery, right? Uh, and you miss all of that if you're just reading a sentence on, on the screen. So it totally destroys a show for me. Uh, but my wife is the other way. She doesn't like loud noises. She would rather listen on very low volume and then refer back to it the entire time. Um, so we, we, it becomes a, a struggle sometimes to watch a movie together.
0: Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. It's it's totally distracting. It's like watching like a foreign film. Like you you have to, you know, I I totally get that, but I've
1: gone full circle on this. I I used to hate it, but now we got the kids. And so there's always like background noise going on. So you can't ever hear what's going on. You put the subtitles on. Now I was in in the movie theater and like, I'm wanting to read the subtitles at the movie theater. (laughs) It's like, they're not there and I'm getting frustrated. I'm like,
0: I need to read this because I'm so used to it now. <laughs> you pulled a 180. I love it. Yeah. Well, uh, you two have met, clearly, at PSYOP. Uh, but here, let me let me uh, introduce uh, Daniel. He's, he's a good friend of mine. We actually work together here at Amazon. Daniel is currently a senior research scientist at Amazon, specializing in ML and AI for talent management purposes. He's a former head of uh, data science at Prudential. Fantastic. Look at that. Uh former rock star at Capital One. Check this out, Cole. This dude won the PSYOP ML competition. How cool is that? I think
1: that's when I very first met you, Daniel. It was like around yeah, that time.
2: Uh, yep, uh, back when uh, Ben Taylor was running the competition.
0: <laughs> that was a weird old time. <laughs> yep. <laughs> uh, but Daniel has a PhD in I.O. from uh, University of Central Florida, and uh, clearly he loves sitting on his back porch. That's what I know about Daniel.
2: And I think the neighbor's lawnmower just started. Are you (laughs) hearing that? Oh, all right, good. (laughs) You know, you know how these things work. Uh, I actually
1: do have a question about your background, Daniel, if you don't mind. Um, so like a lot of people, when they move up into leadership roles, you never see them quite go back. First of all, their their technical chops get rusty. But second of all, (laughs) they never really go back into technical roles uh, because of that rustiness. Well, it seems like you, you've always been in highly technical roles, even when you were in leadership. How has that transition been? And, and like what? Tell me about that story.
2: Yeah. So, I mean, when I started at Prudential, I wasn't hired in as a, a leader. Uh, I worked mm-hmm. my way up to being a leader, but I worked my way, way up to being a leader by taking on technical work, technical projects. And it got to the point where you know I needed additional resources if we were going to continue to deliver on the work I was doing. So that's when I was able to justify uh, building out a team. Um, but you know, in a lot of companies, when you're a first line manager, you're still doing a lot of the technical work. Um, mm-hmm. You're not, you know, I, I wouldn't really call it middle management but still, you know, there's a lot of hands on that you're doing. So I was still doing a lot of hands on at that point uh, at, at Prudential. And then uh, this opportunity at, at Amazon arose and it's one of those things where you know how could you say no right you, you, you got to give it a shot especially yeah you know, scotty's there right like any chance to work with scotty
1: who wouldn't want to work with scotty yeah.
2: <laughs> and, and my attitude on leadership has always been you know I, I enjoy it i think i'm good at it i think i i really do you know try to look out for what's best for my people develop them uh grow them deliver for the company but I'm also not one of those people that needs to be the leader. Like I don't wake up every morning and think, yeah. all right, how am I going to be the leader here? I just want to do good work. Um, if that means I need a team to make that happen, great. If I can do it by myself or with other you know, people at my level, that's also great. And so there's an opportunity to come and do some really awesome work here at Amazon. And, you know, who's going to turn that down?
0: And that's the way sure. it ought to be. Like, if you want to be the leader, you probably should not be the leader, right? The guy that's like, I want to be in charge of everything. Like, no, right. not, not right. you, not you. Anyone, but you, anyone, but you, but uh, Daniel and I work closely together. We, we won't talk about any sort of thing that we have going on here for obvious reasons, but, but I, I tell you, like, he was telling me the story about when he was at uh, UCF about this ProMES, uh, Productivity Measurement Enhancement System, and it blew my mind. It's, it's just core IO, how to measure things, how to deliver results. And uh, I was like, man, Daniel, you, you got to tell your story because this is absolutely fantastic. Uh, so Daniel, like, what, what is it, how to start, you know, all this sort yeah. of good stuff and like great stuff.
2: Yeah. So this, I like think of this as the, the before times, like the before I got into machine learning and AI and all that type of stuff. i I don't even think I knew what that was at the time. The before times, uh, <laughs> I love it. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> but yeah, when I went to to grad school, I, I chose UCF University of Central Florida because uh, Robert Pritchard was there, um, and I was really interested in working with him in his lab. Uh, you know, he's a, a fellow in, in psyop. He's published tons of stuff. He's really big in the motivation performance management space. He had this. Um, he developed this. Uh, performance management, I guess, I don't want to say tool. I don't want to say process. It's really a system as in the name, the productivity measurement enhancement system um, focused on trying to figure out an evidence-based way to apply, um, you know, goal-setting theory among other motivation theories in in a way that works, that we can measure, that we can show is functional um, and it's supported by research. And By the time I got there, I mean, he'd been doing this for decades. Uh, They had literally uh, just come out with a meta analysis uh, that covered. I think it was like 25 years of PROMES studies uh, covering 83 studies. And they found that the uh, overall average effectiveness of a PROMES intervention on the performance of people in, in the workplace was quite large. So we know in our field, and if you have an effect size of like 0. 0.2, that's all right. If you have an effect size of like 0. 0.5, you got a pretty moderate good effect size. Like, I mean, anyone would be thrilled with an effect size of 0. 0.5. 0. 0.8, you're you're off the charts, right? Over 25 years, 83 studies, the average overall effect size was 1.44 for promise.
0: Make a go so, and blush there. Yeah. Yeah. And so to have
2: this performance management system that works and works so well. I loved it when I came across it in undergrad and yeah, that's what I wanted to work on. And so when I got there, um, you know, I immediately pitched this idea like, Hey, why don't we try this in sports? When you think about what sports are, it's, it's very analogous to an organization. You have your manager, which is the coach. You have the employees, which are the players. They have to produce outputs, which are aspects of the game that they have to perform uh, to, you know, make money into the company or win games, win championships, um, at the, or at the, on the sports team. It just seemed very natural. Um, and if it works so well in business, why wouldn't it work in sports? Right. The lab was all excited about that idea, loved it. But then the question becomes, all right, like, who are we going to go do this with like high school team probably doesn't fit the bill here. We need more commitment than that. Um, college team would be great, but how do we get into a college team for that? Well, I was at university of Maryland for my undergrad. I, played on the women's practice squad there uh, for the basketball team. And so, you know, a lot of the D1 – Setting
0: blocks and this sort of thing, just like uh, shagging rebounds?
2: No, like we – so the practice squad's job is to scout the offense and defense of the upcoming game and learn those offenses and defenses and then basically reproduce them on the court in practice – For the women to actually practice against. Right. And it's a ton of fun. I mean, and when I was at Maryland doing this, we won the national championship. And I I say we, because we (laughs) actually lose a year of uh, eligibility uh, as D1 athletes every year we do this. Technically, I was a D1 athlete.
1: There you um, go. (laughs) Getting in on an asterisk. I like it. Yeah.
2: Yeah, I like it. Um, but yeah, so when I got to UCF, I was thinking, all right, well, this is a D1 school conference USA at the time. Like, I'm sure they have the same thing. So like day two at UCF, I went to the, the, um, you know, sports complex and I went right into the women's basketball office and said, I'd like to have a meeting with the, the head coach of the women's basketball team. And they were like, sure. Sounds good. Um, told her, I, you know, I come from Maryland. We just won a championship. I'd love to be on your practice squad. She was thrilled um and you know as i had been on the practice squad for a couple weeks uh lots of you know talking so what are you doing here oh you're getting a phd in psychology love for you to talk to our players and i was like all right well that's not really what we do but sure happy to do that uh (laughs) and then i had built up enough of a rapport where i could go to them and say at some point all right we actually do have this thing called Promez. it actually works really well we'd love to pitch the idea to you and see if you're on board and we pitched it and, and they said yeah Let's let's give it a go.
0: Fantastic. So like you, you go there, like you're you're a fresh IO student, and like you said, like we have this performance enhancement system, but yeah. like h- how does it get implemented? Like what 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 yeah, what like the what, what is it?
1: it? I'm sorry, like I, I like take it even further back. Like, what is the system?
2: The the system is it's very effective, but it's difficult to put together. Um, so on average, it takes about 40 hours to complete. Uh, the development of the system. So before it even goes into practice and to complete the development of the system, you need all of the employees or a representative sample of the employees and their managers, um, in the development process with a consultant that understands and knows how to, to build premise systems. So before the season began, we got the whole team together for, um, like two or three weeks of, of running these sessions and you really start at a super high level. And you you work your way down to super granular levels, uh, all to set up the system. So, as far as first, like
0: behaviors, like behaviors you're yeah, talking about.
2: Yeah. So the way it works is the very first thing you have to identify are what are the objectives for this context. The things that were identified uh, by the players and coaches was things like improve, um, you know, defensive rebounding, um, improve ball pressure, uh, improve uh, transition offense, things like that, right? And that all makes sense. And that sounds great, but that's not really specific. Like we we as IO psychologists would know, those are horrible measures, (laughs) but they get, they start getting um, the the players or the employees into this mental model of understanding. All right, well, what are the, the broad things? Then for each objective, you have to create a set of indicators. These indicators are the specific measures that we're talking. Um, So, like, for improving defensive rebounding, one of the indicators was percentage of attempts to remove space. So think about what that means. And for all the uninitiated, if you're not familiar with basketball, um, a rebound is after the, the ball is shot by a team. And if it doesn't go in, it bounces off the basketball hoop and someone grabs the ball. That grabbing of the ball is a rebound. Rebounds are really important because if you're on offense and you grab a rebound, you get to take another shot. Um, If you're on defense and you grab a rebound, it means that the other teams turn with the balls. It's essentially a turnover,
0: yeah, Yeah. at that point.
2: Getting the actual rebound isn't something that's always in your control. If I'm doing everything perfectly, if I'm acting exactly the way I need to act, the behaviors I need to do to get a rebound, but I'm going up against Shaquille O'Neal, it doesn't matter what I do. He's going to get the rebound like 99% of the time over right uh he's just so much bigger than me
1: (laughs) you need to abide Uh, by the pro system daniel like then you would you would be able to out rebound shaquille o'neal
2: you gotta close the
0: space (laughs) gotta close the space
2: so instead of measuring this like outcome did i get the rebound we would measure percentage of attempts to remove space which would be trying to put uh reduce the amount of space between you and the other player and in basketball this is called like boxing out but um we went a little bit more, more liberal here and just said if you get if you try to remove that space then you you count as a pass and the idea would be the more times we do this correctly as a team the more rebounds we will get as a team we, we see uh, this
0: in organizations too like are you engaging in the yeah. right behaviors i mean there's all sorts of factors that may play into an outcome but are you engaging in those behaviors that relate to the outcome exactly
2: it's it's, it's hard to give feedback to someone and say you didn't get enough of the outcome. So you're not, you're not, (laughs) yeah. So it's better to get feedback on the things you have control of as we all know. And it's a, it's a huge part of a lot of different motivation theories. So after doing that, um, I think we ended up with something like, it was like 23 hours to create, uh, 19 indicators. And so at this point now we have to move into contingencies. This is always the most confusing abstract part to a promo's process once we have all these behavior measures, we have to figure out a way to essentially standardize that, right? We have to know, is it more important for us to work on removing space uh, for the rebounds, or is it more important for us to work on um, improving the amount of times we have a four-second transition down the court after a turnover? Um, there are such different behaviors. Uh, they lead to right. such different things. Um, so how can we compare those two things? They're it's apples and oranges, right? Um, so we need to standardize it the way this happens is with contingency graphs. Um, and so we basically make a graph for every single indicator and the X axis of that graph is how often you're performing that behavior. So if it's like percentage, uh, it would be your percentage for that behavior. The Y axis for every, every one of these, uh, graphs is what we call effectiveness. We pick a range of effectiveness that's going to be standard across all behaviors. So in this example, we chose negative 200 to positive 100, uh, with the idea being that um, the most a behavior could give you in effectiveness would be 100 points, and the most a behavior could hurt you if you weren't doing it well in effectiveness was negative 200 points.
1: Okay. That's like the whole loss aversion stuff from Kahneman and Tversky is like negative things are worse than positive benefits kind of thing.
2: (laughs) Well, so this is actually a part of a conversation you have in the process. Um, It doesn't always work like this. In some premise systems, they might not have a negative. There might not be a harm to doing something bad. The way we actually identified this was saying, um, think of the behavior that would add the most value. Uh, to the team. So of these 19 behaviors, which one adds the most value to the team when we do it perfectly? And now think of the behavior when we do it 100% incorrect, which one hurts the team the most? Uh, Which one provides the least amount of value? Right. And once you've identified those two extremes, that's how you create your anchors. And you say, all right, if we're going to say that the best behavior adds 100 points of value, what would the opposite of that be? Is it Just no value? Is it the same amount but negative value? Is it double but negative value? You know, so on and so forth. And the team landed on um the uh negative double value.
0: I I think I think this is like really great information, but I want to make sure like we get to like sort of like the uh how it was implemented portion. Like this is a great background, but like you guys actually videotaped every game, right? And scored these behaviors.
2: contingency graphs where it would show us, all right, if we bump up every single behavior by 5% for the next game, which which behavior gives us the most effectiveness points for that 5% game? Um, that tells us now which behaviors to prioritize for the next set of games. Uh, we would then you know, basically go to the, the coaches and say, all right, these are the three behaviors that are going to give you the most impact. But the measurement, what Scott, you're just talking about, That was insane. So these are like actual behaviors. Like we have to see, did you do this on the court or not? So we had to create a process where a game would happen Friday. We would have to get that game back to us, even if they were on the road. Um, So we set up like FTP servers and that type of stuff. So they could upload games on the road for us Um, because it's all happening on like individual camcorders, like CDs back then or stuff like that. And then we had an army of undergraduate research assistants. I am not exaggerating when I tell you we had 40 undergraduate research assistants.
0: Oh, yeah. Um, Making those hours. Every,
2: <laughs> every behavior, we had to double code it to make sure we were coding it correctly.
1: inter um, reliability right there. Exactly.
2: And we figured out, like, all right, what behaviors could we group together to give to an individual person so that they could do multiple behaviors at once without being overwhelmed? Uh, at the same time right and so we had like different pods of raiders and each pod of raiders was trained on a specific subset of behaviors that they were then the experts on and and we would bring the raiders in on saturdays and sundays uh, because that's when we needed them and we would have to have everything done if the game last game of the weekend was on a month uh, on a sunday we'd have to be ready for the feedback session to the team on tuesday morning so this turnaround was crazy
1: yeah it sounds a lot like the rating they do for pro football focus or pff ratings in the nfl Mm -hmm. in college but it also it sounds like something that you could do way easier with machine learning now in terms of like categorization (laughs) of behaviors like just imagine how much time you would have saved
2: oh my god yeah like sport vu i don't know if you're familiar with that it's uh the basketball one um they have like all the pro teams and most of the college teams now, they have these cameras set up um, that within like like centimeters can measure where the players are on the court, where the ball is on the court. So a lot of these behaviors, like did you remove space between you and a defensive player, that, that can be automated now. Like it's amazing how how much easier it is to even measure this stuff than it was before. You took these <laughs> all these
0: like great learnings from each uh, game film provide it back to the coaches for training, right?
2: The way you measure the impact a PROMES system is having um, traditionally is you spend that time creating the system with the team, but you actually don't provide feedback uh, for the first couple of performance cycles. So in this case, the first couple of uh, weekends. Um, And the reason for this is because we need a baseline. Um, we need a baseline of how many effectiveness points as a team are you getting across all the behaviors from those contingency graphs without us giving you feedback and then once we've have we have enough of a baseline we then start giving you that feedback and and seeing how things improve um and it's it's kind of funny because when you think about it like the fact that we even spent you know tens of hours creating the system together as a team it means you're probably going to perform better already like
0: because like, you're engaging in this sort of engaged, deliberate you
2: discussions yeah. about what is and isn't important from the perspective of the coaches and the players. It becomes very clear what you need to be doing. So like you probably are already performing much better. But then we start giving you feedback after this baseline period has has happened, and we see that you jump through the roof in your performance even more. We saw a an improvement, uh, the effect size going from the baseline period. To the feedback period was 0. 0.8, which, as we know, is, is a nice effect size. Um, and Wrong then we had, we had something interesting happen, where at the very end of the season, we just, um, due to scheduling with finals and our research assistants plus the players, we weren't able actually to give feedback to the last, uh, you know, five games. I think it was. So we ended up having this natural experiment uh, that, you know, we didn't even plan on where we got Sarah. Well, now that we've stopped getting feedback, what happens? And we saw that the effect size going from feedback to post feedback, no more feedback was 1.08. You,
0: you go through this entire process throughout the season. You, you're, 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 uh, providing feedback. You're, you're given the additional coaching, uh, all these like specialized skills. Like what happened Did they finish last
2: the like you know preseason all the reporters they they say this is what we expect to happen for the team for this year and UCF women's basketball they were expected to finish at the bottom of conference USA they ended up winning conference USA there you year. go we're measuring the effect size on things like the, um the effectiveness score which is comes from these contingency graphs so i care about that you care about that um no one else in the world actually cares about that right uh really what we care about is our like-
1: listeners do. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And
2: so what we found was um like the overall metrics that are accepted for overall performance of a team are uh points scored per hundred possessions and points given up per hundred possessions. It's a good team metric. It it doesn't matter you know who you're really playing against. Um it it really encapsulates how well the team is performing. And what we found was that um, from the baseline period to the feedback period, points scored per 100 possessions went up. And then when we took feedback away, points scored per 100 possessions went down.
0: That's-
1: yeah, when I'm having a bad day, like an existential moment, I think about like, what am I doing in people analytics? And a lot of times it's like, can I make a graph go up or can I, does the graph go down? <laughs> and like, that's the sum of my entire career. You know, right. other than just having a bunch of meetings.
2: Promes has always run up against a wall. It doesn't get used uh, as often as it should. Uh, people don't even really know about it. We see all the time, oh, performance management is broken. Uh, it's not broken. Like we, we, we know the secret sauce to it. We just have to actually go do it. And no one wants to invest that time up front because it is about 40 hours up front. Even though there's Promes research that shows you get your return on investment within six months of building the system. And so everything after that is great gravy.
1: Well, that's the question I actually wanted to come back to Daniel is like, what are organizations getting wrong with performance management and what can they do better? And I I think of the example you used earlier, like many times performance management is geared towards outcomes focused rather than behaviors focused. It's just like, I feel like every company gets that wrong. And, and, you know, there could be 50 years of research that says you shouldn't do it that way. And they're still going to do it that way. Uh, yep. But like, what what are they getting wrong and how could they do it better or just you know, with a few bullet points?
2: I think at its base, the problem is we try to make a one-size-fits-all for the entire organization. And, and that will never work unless your organization mm-hmm. is super small, super specific, where everyone's kind of doing the same thing. Um, one-size-fits-all, it doesn't work. It's too broad. It's not specific enough. And so how do you go about addressing that? Well, I think we have a really good example for how to address that from uh, the software development space. Um, you know, agile is a, a very well accepted um, you know, tool to develop software now. And there's a very central player in the Agile process uh, on a software development team. And that player is the Scrum Master. Scrum Master makes sure that all the stories are getting built, that they're staying on top of them, that they're correct, that all the agile processes are happening the way they should be happening. And so that's super specific to a specific uh, software development team. We don't have you know, a scrum master that covers an entire division of software developers. They're really assigned to just a handful of teams because it needs to be specific to the team. So we should have performance management scrum masters. If, if performance management is really that critical to the organization, why don't we have trained performance management experts that are assigned a couple teams, and their job is to manage that the performance of those teams? It, it's a full-time job when you think about it in the context of the way, like a promess system is built. That is a hundred percent a full-time job if you give it to a couple teams uh, for one person. Um, but it works. The the product is so much better when you have this type of f- performance management. So why wouldn't we invest in performance management scrum masters we know it works we've seen the model i
1: mean i know that's like a like a very practical take but my, my cynical response to it is because organizations really only care about firing people and giving out raises and that's <laughs> why they do performance management they don't actually want people to perform better and like a, a previous organization i used to work for i had to build a performance management pro from scratch. And so I, I consulted the literature. I went through like all the process and I said, we're solely going to try to drive performance using this tool. And everybody hated it. Every I got pushed back at every turn because, and, and basically eventually our CEO was like, yeah, we just want to fire people and get, and they didn't use those words, but we just want to fire people yeah. and give out raises and bonuses. How do you, how do you react to that, Daniel? And is that maybe the wall that ProMez is hitting?
2: I don't really think that's the wall. Like obviously that exists. That's definitely out there. But I don't think that's the wall. Even in organizations where you genuinely can tell they care about performance management, they put a lot of thought, time and resources into it. It's still just it's too labor intensive to set up, even though like you can tell them everything about how they'll get the return on investment, how even maybe even if you don't think about it that way, you just think about it as an investment itself in your people. Um, It's just too much. um, it, It takes too much effort to put together uh typically and so yeah i I agree like you know some companies just aren't that great when it comes to performance management but i'm going to say that a a majority of them are from my experience and i've done i've done consulting and like yeah like the people that are working in the space that are managing the performance management system like they they genuinely care about it like they don't want to feel like they're just there to like make sure that we can fire the people and, and give the raises yeah
0: yeah, I don't, I don't think that organizations are inherently evil. I, I think that it's, it's like a collection of issues. Uh, everyone's busy. Everyone's doing their thing. And if, if given the choice, you'd want your people to develop. You'd want to show them the right skills to make them better, to improve the entire organization. But it, it, as you describe it, Daniel, it's the program system may be ap- applicable to a small slice of the population. And therefore, you would need to reproduce this a hundred times, a thousand times, who knows yeah. how many, depending on the size of your organization.
1: exactly. And that's or surprising. you just need to share it on a popular podcast
0: and then the people <laughs> will come. You know?
2: Hey, f- from your mouth to God's ears, right?
0: <laughs> or dive into some uh, MLAI and just get it to do it, right? Yeah, exactly. So
2: like a lot of work has gone into and research has gone into uh, previously. How do we shorten that upfront investment? Um, yeah. so it's not so critical or so it's not so much that people are more welcoming to the idea of PROMES and thus far the research shows, um, you know, as you remove some of that upfront investment takeaway pieces, maybe we bring already a list of indicators and you have to choose from that list, right? Um, it, it reduces the effectiveness of PROMES and so then that raises the question, how much of promes's effectiveness is the measuring of these things and how much of it is the actual you know employees getting together with their managers and really hashing out what is important for us, having those deep conversations and debates what do we care about what you know like there's there's a value there there's there's a there there for sure and that's what the promes research has I think shown like when you try to remove that component of it You just don't get as good of a system.
1: I do have one aside, just and it's just popped in my brain because I recently wrote an article about it, but how does the ProMez system account for peak performance? Like how does it measure peak performance versus typical performance? You're hot on this lately. I am. I just talked about it on another podcast too recently.
2: It's done at a team level, uh, typically, ProMez. So we aggregate across the team. And so you could have like the team operating at at peak performance, if you will. And what we see in the contingency graphs is how much is that peak performance worth? Because the whole idea in the contingency graph is you have to show what is the realistic upper bound of performance and what's the value of that to Mm -hmm. us effectiveness points. Um, And then what's the typical level of performance? And what's the value of that to us effective points? And what's the like realistic worst level of performance? I don't know what we call that one. But- <laughs> Zero. That, right. Well, not only zero, like, which is surprising. It actually, actually
0: some, some behaviors are worse than zero. Like just stop <laughs> doing whatever you're doing, just stop it.
2: But um, as far as peak performance go, it, it's it's built into the system. It says, all right, well, when you're performing at peak, this is how many effectiveness points you get. This is how much value that's worth to the company, uh, to the team. Uh, so it's, it's part of the system, which is great. And we can see then, is there really that much of a benefit to try to set up a, uh, an environment for our team to go from regular performance to peak performance? In some instances, the increase in effectiveness points you get makes it worth that. In other instances, the increase in effectiveness points really doesn't add much value.
1: Scott, you mentioned in an earlier podcast about hockey teams measuring, I can't remember if it was like a plus or minus rating, like when a player is on the court, is a goal more likely or less likely to be scored? Yeah, and I, I think about that in terms of like peak performance. I bet you that's when everybody's rating goes up, not just the person who's on the court or something like that, because they're making
0: everyone better. Yeah, you get like like an unsung hero sort of rating throughout the course of the year. Uh, yeah. I was sort of like perseverating on this idea of like you could be like the best McDonald's fry cook on earth. Like you're just like so sharp. You got all the promes you know sort of attributes but do you really need that in like to Daniel's point is it worth going from average fry cook to the best fry cook right and what do you get from yeah. that that's true that's the now the, the thing
1: country. i think about there though, is like mcdonald's fries used to taste way better in the past than they taste so? now yeah like there was like they actually changed the recipe i remember i listened to a malcolm gladwell episode where he goes back and finds the earlier recipe and gets him to make it for it and he's like, oh, it's amazing.
0: Well they used but to like, cook it in uh, pig fat or you know bacon or something.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Something that was probably awful for you, but it tasted amazing.
0: So man. like
1: maybe, maybe the peak performance is the cook who brings back the old recipe <laughs> and just knocks people's socks off.
0: Uh I'm about to go to Europe again and man, like it just tastes different over there. Like they don't they don't appreciate the American Need for well, good, good
2: American, American McDonald's fries are not vegan, while like the UK ones, they is
0: that what's them. going on? It's because, yeah, fries in England yeah. are rough. The
2: American ones, they actually, the, part of the seasoning that they put on it, it includes, um, like crushed up, like cow bone.
0: Uh, oh uh, like what? tallow, t- tallow, yeah, yeah,
2: something like that.
0: That's oh. part of the, I was seasoning. like, that sounds horrible. No wonder I love it. People love it.
1: <laughs> wow. Okay. Well, I mean,
0: like uh, speaking of uh, things we love, you want to enter the uh, confusion matrix, Daniel? Sure. Let's do it. All right. So, I mean, honestly, this is this has been failing for the past few episodes. We'll call it uh, navigator Air. Perhaps I haven't set people up well. But you're <laughs> you're a massive sports fan. Like, uh, have you have you ever like seen something incredible or like something like culturally relevant in person? Or what was what was the best moment that you've seen? Like
2: the best, like cultural one. I wasn't there in person, but like I'll never forget. It It was Cal Ripken, twenty one thirty one. I mean, how how could you give that one up, right? You're
0: a Baltimore guy. Yeah, yeah. I was like,
1: he must be
2: from Baltimore. (laughs) Yep, yep. I'm a Baltimore guy. Uh, Iron Man backyard right here. Yep, Iron Man. um, You know, playing two thousand one hundred thirty one consecutive games. Um, Seeing that moment live. Uh, on TV, just being like in this town when that happened, especially because like the Orioles have just it's been a rough couple decades
0: for us. <laughs> uh, and you used to uh, give tours at the stadium? I, I worked at the
2: stadium. so um, I had an internship in high school. Um, I interned first in ballpark operations, uh, and then I interned in accounting. So in ballpark operations, at the beginning of the season, before the season starts, one of the things we had to do was make sure all the bathrooms are good. Um, that nothing needs fixing oh, in the That's bathrooms. so
0: intern so work right there.
2: I, yeah, I I have been in <laughs> every single bathroom in Camden Yards, every single stall. I have flushed every single
1: toilet to ensure that oh, they're working man, so they log it. <laughs> Put
0: that on the resume, right?
1: Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not jealous of that. <laughs>
0: at all have, have y'all ever caught a foul ball or like home run no no, no me neither school. i don't get i caught some it.
1: in batting practice at the braves game before but that's not really the same because yeah, the game's yeah, not going on I thought about that. yeah yeah i
2: i,
0: I saw <laughs> a, a batting practice home run hit this lady square in the face at the astrodome Oof. and it's it's stuck with me like yeah. obviously this is forever ago. You know?
1: what was that your epic moment in sports scott <laughs>
0: <laughs> no, saw, no, I mean, like, culturally relevant, like, I I, I saw Ricky Williams break the uh, college football rushing record right. in 98. Uh, I've been, you know, I, I go to tons of sporting events, Um, uh, ne- never caught a foul ball, Uh, tons of Texas football. I, I can't believe, boy, I had more fun last year at Texas OU than I've had in a long time they beat up on them. I saw uh TCU at Baylor. That was great last year. All this sort of stuff. Probably like I, okay, oh man, this I got a flashback. I went to a Dallas Stars game like probably like 2000 2001 somewhere in there and a a brawl broke out on the ice. And like I don't remember who they were playing, <laughs> but like a brawl broke out. It lasted like 25 minutes. Defensive defenseman had this guy up on the boards and like, he's like beating the crap out of him. And like, I was like crying, like, like not, not as sad. It's like, I don't know. It's like sports tears. Like, I don't know why. Like, I was like sports emotionally, tears. emotionally like <laughs> stirred by this moment. It was so beautiful. Watching this oh, division, like take out this like poor right winger or whatever he was.
2: I mean, can you imagine being at like one of the like legit baseball brawls? Because you're not expecting and All of a sudden you have like, Oh Yeah. People. Flooding the field, just going at it, like, yeah, it's yeah. I can't even I imagine. love
0: watching the catchers run in from the outfield, like in their full gear. Like <laughs> you're not gonna do that. I always wonder so, what
2: my role would be and like what I would do in that situation. But I'd be the <laughs> guy like running and then like actually never throwing a punch.
0: You gotta like you gotta, like, just, you gotta little... like sort of get in there, but like <laughs> be by your teammates, but like you don't be too close to the other team, you know. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you gotta gotta yeah, show you your might. support,
1: but not really. Yeah, you might catch a punch on accident if you get too close. I, so I don't watch a lot of baseball, but I randomly on television, because I watch like one baseball game like every 10 years and I really? watch the whole Steve Bartman game. I happen to randomly be watching the Chicago Cubs when the Steve Bartman episode happened and I still love watching that documentary about it like Moises Alou and the guys yeah. trying to catch it in the crowd, but I just happened to randomly be watching baseball that night and caught it live. And so, like, that was was WGN, I remember, because, like, that was where you could catch all the Cubs games nationally. And that was such a weird, weird circumstance. I mean, I don't want to go, like, this is a way back machine. I don't even know if you guys are familiar with that episode, but that was crazy.
0: It wasn't his fault either. He was just doing what anyone else would do. And was it a Lou Like, started calling him out from the – that's what – when people really in Chicago
1: him. started like trying to like hunt him down and like yeah. kill him, <laughs> like try like there was like a manhunt to try to find him. So
2: this this reminds me of
1: uh, Jeffrey
2: Mayer. I don't know if you're familiar with that incident. No, I know that is that was um, it was the Yankees in playoffs. Uh, Derek Jeter hit a long fly ball and it was gonna be caught at the wall. But Jeffrey Mayer stuck his hand out, grabbed the ball. Now it's a home run and like total fan interference. I mean, really stuck his hand out. Like that should have been an out. There's no replay. And a
0: gun. And a gun. Right. Re- and and pull, so pull
2: the they put him on the parade when they won the World Series.
0: <laughs> yes. Hey, MVP. <laughs> this is like uh you and the uh UCF team, right? <laughs> That is he, a got more, very... he got more
2: recognition than I did because I couldn't yeah. show that I directly caused
1: the quick. That's a very New York Yankees thing to do. <laughs> Talk about sore winners.
0: You all want to uh, do some nerdery? Yeah.
1: yeah, let's do some nerdery.
0: Fantastic. So uh, our obo- uh, pardon me, our robot overlords are uh, making inroads into I.O. Uh, in this article, improving measurement and prediction and personnel selection through the application of machine learning. So this is, it, it, it's six articles combined into a single like mega article this motherfucker's 95 pages like this is not light reading by any means uh but overall the the articles show uh ml can score written and orally constructed data pardon me collected data uh, primarily through assessment centers uh and they can do it as accurately as humans uh but far more efficiently which is of course the uh, holy grail there um it makes their use more feasible uh, with better validity and little to no adverse impact. Uh, They can predict multiple outcomes simultaneously, uh, such as uh, performance and say turnover. Uh, ML can make job analysis more efficient uh, by determining the KSA is needed based on job descriptions. Overall, uh, ML is here, yo.
1: Well, first of all, I was I was really surprised not to see Daniel on there as an author. Yeah, it's like, he deserves. It, it seems like it's your whole friend group, um, that are you know <laughs> the authors on it because there's like 20 authors. Uh, but second of all, I wanted to give P Psych a shout out. We talk about JAP on here often, but P Psych was always my favorite journal yeah. back in grad school. So well done, P Psych, for going all in on machine learning.
2: So um, I was a special editor on this. Uh, so I actually edited a bunch of the papers that are in this study. Um, Unfortunately, when the call for submissions went out, um, I was at an organization that wouldn't let me share any um, data. And uh, one thing you'll notice in all of these papers is that they're all applied. Um, You know, these are like real in the field papers. Uh, And so if you didn't have, you know, applied data that you could work with, you, you couldn't submit to it, essentially.
1: Yeah, but can, can I reinforce that point for a minute, because that is, in my opinion, what makes this type of article so special is because it is all applied data with all, you know, PhD level people that are practicing the scientist practitioner model using real organizational data. This is the paramount, in my opinion, of what constitutes scientific research. It's not MTurk, it's not undergraduate students, like mm-hmm. this is real data in real organizations and real findings too. You know, if you could read one paper every year that was published, this would probably be one of those papers in my world for real-world impact.
2: Oh yeah, without question. I this this really wraps it all up for you the current state of ML
0: in selection. Real-world impact and pl- like talk about like an innovative approach to publishing as well. Like so we're going to take six different studies, package them yeah. together, they all relate to a theme, publish yeah, exactly. it well, if I
1: remember correctly, it was they they had like a call for papers about machine learning. So I don't think normally like six papers just manifest all together at once for a normal publishing process. But I think it was because of this call for papers for machine learning.
2: Campion and Campion, who I think you guys just had, um, they were the ones who proposed this to PSYC and they were the overall full editors on this. Um, and they, they said, you know, one of the things you want to do is get these uh, applied folks that are really doing a lot of the cutting edge work we want to get them in, mm-hmm. but a typical issue with the applied world is just it's it's too difficult for one of their research studies to stand on its own. It would take way too much work, way too many other things uh, for um, you know for it to happen, and and they just wouldn't have the resources or time to go do that. That's not their focus. They're not academics. So instead, what if we said we made lower the bar to entry? We say all you need to do is you know tell us what you're doing in some anonymized way um we'll even give you like a, a form to fill out so it's super easy and then we'll make sure that we help you structure that in a way where at least it can be part of a larger group of papers as well so the campaigns they did a great job thinking this through how do we get some of this applied work into the academic literature and they did a great job with it
1: yeah absolutely want to give them credit and when we had them on the podcast um Which hasn't actually come out yet so i know you haven't listened to it daniel but one of the things that um, michael mentioned was how like sometimes you struggle in the for-profit world um, to share your findings and so that to me is again i want to give them credit for having the foresight to try to get over those kind of barriers that you see when you're in the for-profit world trying to do some of this work again like the scientist practitioner model only works if both sides are are you know contributing and this this is a really great example of that
2: and the practitioners they want to contribute it's just it's not like we don't get anything at work for it right so it's oh, all yeah.
1: so when, when uh, scott published in those journals like recently i'm like are you crazy man like the amount of effort that a, like a non-academic has to go through is just crazy
0: yeah, no, they're, they're, there's internal systems and like the publishing process is just painful anyway. Like you, you submit something, you get something back three or four months later, three, or four months to turn it around. And, you know, before you know it, a year and a half has gone by and you're like, I don't even remember fucking doing this study. I don't remember <laughs> yeah. what were we talking about. Poor when Daniel. There's no
1: tangible payout for going through that, you know, hazing process that, it, that you have to go through.
0: There's no tangible payout, but... I, I find it rewarding in itself. It feels good to be accomplished in this sort of stuff. Um, yeah. the, the, that has limits, though. I, I fully admit that. Absolutely. Well, kind of kind
1: of on a similar theme, the article that I had um, for this week is another academic one from Leadership Quarterly, which, again, I want to give them some props because they've changed their methodology lately to be much more evidence-based and less theoretical. Um, and the, the the title of the article is Causal Inference with Observational Data, a Tutorial on Propensity Score Analysis. Um, And before I guess I get into this, are either of you familiar with propensity score analysis or have you used it before?
0: I'm familiar with the process. So it's my understanding that uh, you would essentially run a a logistic regression on some sort of outcome, uh, Mm -hmm. identify the uh, beta weights. Those become your weights. You essentially assign that to a variety of uh, predictors and then, you know, essentially just calculate out that regression coefficient to have a overall propensity score or probability score. And then I, I've used it, you know, a, a modified version in matching. So you yeah. find someone's like a 0. 0.5, find another person with 0.5, they become pairs. Yeah. Point four, point four, etc.
1: And then you apply it to all the all our lot Wow, you should have written this article. That was a much better description than what they used. <laughs> and
0: I'm not kidding. Um, <laughs> and then, then then you have like a control sample and a uh, experimental yeah. sample. Uh, well, that that's what I wanted to get into
1: here because um, first of all, I don't think a lot of people have heard of this type of analysis, especially in the applied world, and that's why I wanted to put it out there because we are constantly in the applied world looking at uh quasi-experimental designs right because we very very rarely get true experimental conditions and this is a really great correction how to deal with observational data and and, in that type of circumstance with a quasi- experimental design and how you can place corrections to know if your findings are true or if they're just due to chance and I, i think scott your explanation was excellent um, you, you have some academics that, that wrote this article specifically, uh, I'm probably mispronouncing this, but Kaori Narita was the lead author. I wanted to give her credit. This, was, this is excellent work. And I just want to kind of get the message out there for different types of methodologies that might not be as prevalent um, right. in terms of how you can apply this in real applied research. Because, again, I, I'm the first person to criticize people that are creating these methodologies that are never going to be used in the real world and I always say it's just so they can get tenure and get published you know somewhere but this is actually one that I feel like could have a lot more upside in the applied world but it, I don't think it does and so I wanted to give it a little bit of kudos
0: yeah I mean like say, saying I, I, I in, in all honesty it's been a rough week I didn't read the full article uh, I read sure. a bit of the abstract neither around. did I. <laughs> I I I read the title that's that's what i read yeah. but saying like causal is a bit strong i don't know May, perhaps they go deeper into that deep in the article i will say if anyone out there is like looking to do something like this i use the uh, uh match it package for r and essentially mm-hmm. it does largely the same thing but through k means so you find someone with like uh, 12 months of tenure someone 12 months of tenure match them you know it, along with uh you know, your organization or your job level or, you know, whatever else you're talking about. And you you produce a control and experimental sample that way.
1: I mean, uh, that's one of the part of the beauty of this podcast, I think, Skye, is because you, you're such a highly technical person. You get to fill in some of the gaps that I have. And I think kind of vice versa on the, you know, the side of like, I'm always talking about random ass shit that you don't get. There. But uh, <laughs> like the thing I'd say is and to your point about like causal inference There's this whole like revolution that's going on about like can you do causal research in you know the social sciences or the behavioral sciences? And does that even exist? And I'm really looking forward. We we have an episode with a guest. I'm not gonna name their name that's coming up where we're gonna talk about this, but maybe we can revisit this article then because I I just think that like the causal revolution is coming and we need to kind of be more educated about it.
2: I, I think bringing it full circle, uh, ProMez is a perfect example of causal. There we
1: go. Uh,
0: nice callback. There we go.
1: It is fully
2: in that world, and it's a part of the reason why it's so good. How, how so? How so?
0: Just because like, you can identify the different facets that relate to your performance we, and we then... Measure,
2: we measure this baseline period before we ever even give you the feedback. And then we give you feedback and see how things change. So we know this feedback is leading to that change. Like it's as clear as it can get in, in causal inference.
1: I think there's just some people that just don't believe causality exists. Like, I don't know how to talk about that. If you're just like, yeah, I don't believe stars are real. You know, it's yeah, like, yeah. okay, whatever. We're not talking about somebody, you know, it's on the rational spectrum.
0: Well, that, that's but... like, that's what, what Hume would say. Hume would say that, uh, once you observe something it's already changed so it's not really yeah. there anymore kind of like a star sure. like it takes eight minutes for light to get from the sun to your eyeball that that sun isn't there anymore it's not really real but you know what is real are you a karaoke
1: fan scott i am not dude like really? i
0: i see karaoke. i i have friends here in seattle and like they love the shit of karaoke and like that's time for me to leave like i don't get time it, for that
1: is it is it karaoke karaoke
0: I don't know but check this out there's a bar in DC called the Wonderland Ballroom where people will send in random powerpoints and people will get shit-faced and go ad-lib these powerpoints totally cold make up stuff about the graphs and apparently it's the funniest thing on earth which it sounds amazing I can see the not too far from
1: DC have you done this Daniel
2: I have not heard of this. Um, I could see the right person being very good at this. Like, I have some friends I'm thinking of who would be amazing at this. But I also <laughs> know, like, the wrong person doing this, it would just be cringy and horrible. So I hope they have some some type of vetting to make sure the right people are going up there.
0: I, I would say, like, the same thing would apply to uh, singing karaoke, too, right? Like, yeah, I was like, like oh, that just no.
1: sounds like karaoke. <laughs>
0: <laughs> some people rock it, some people stop it i don't know some people give everyone a chance to get back to their conversation
2: (laughs) if you're watching bad karaoke though, like you can kind of like tune it out it's music in the background maybe it's not great um but if someone's like presenting something to me and then that presentation sucks like it's hard for me to tune that out like i can't just start having a conversation with you there's someone else talking to me
0: yeah i am gonna sit next to you at psyop and i want you to heckle (laughs) when someone's presentation sucks
1: My my thought is I can easily tune it out unless they have the subtitles turned on. Like oh, so they just need the they just need those closer. subtitles.
0: <laughs> have y'all ever been placed in a position like uh, where you had to present a slide deck that you were less than prepared for?
1: Yes, but I always chose the going rogue version of like, you know what? I had this idea like I'm just going to completely throw in a wild card of like not even talk about what the presentation is supposed to be about. But really, it was a get out of jail free. So I don't actually have to present all the things. I have no clue what I'm talking about.
0: I like that strategy. That's a good one. I I was throwing this position at a like small conference several years ago where I was like third author and like the other two couldn't make it. So I was like, I don't know anything about this study. I was just here like editing your doc. So (laughs) why? I can't I can't field any questions. But we're we're up on stage. Here we go. Right. Let's do this. Let's do it. We're gonna do it. So,
1: what's the like? I think there's a better way of putting it. What's the worst presentation you ever gave?
0: Luckily, I've repressed it pretty good. Evidently, (laughs) I'm better. I'm better when I can just like field questions. So, if I have to like give a presentation, like like at a panel, I would much rather just like speak off the cuff then like have definitive things to talk about which is why i like your strategy of like screw it i'm going to talk about whatever i want to talk about and that's the way we're going to fly with this
2: i don't think i've given like a absolutely horrible presentation I, What like what's popping to mind is like lectures i gave when oh, i was no. teaching in grad school
0: and yeah, some of those bad.
2: lectures were really bad that's that's right <laughs> <what I'm doing. laughs>
0: I have uh, two flashbulb memories. Once when I was a master's student, I was presenting somewhere in Arkansas, and they had like one of these like TVs mounted on the ceiling, and I backed up and like smacked my head super good up against that. That was really embarrassing. And then I was presenting in class, uh, doctoral program, and I guess I hit a button and just turned off the entire system, entire presentation system, right when I was about to go. It's like, there you go
1: probably wasn't my worst presentation but daniel's story made me think of it when i was in the master's program you had to you know present on on teaching like a class and they made us because we were phd students even though we were taking a master's class we had to like teach certain courses not yeah. just be yeah, a yeah. part of the class and i remember i had this i wasn't i wasn't completely prepared and i didn't want to like get super nervous and i had this brilliant idea before the class i was like anytime i get i start saying something i get super nervous i'm just gonna take a sip of water i had like one of those like big like yeah. 40 ounce waters or something like that and the class got over it, the strategy worked brilliantly i never got nervous but the the professor came up to me and like well oh, you did a really good job but why did you drink so much water <laughs> you were drinking water the whole time like you I'm were hydrated. doing like mid-sentence and i was like ah i got caught <laughs> <laughs> Uh, which uh, actually, strange. That was a class I met my wife in, which is wild. Um, so she must have not minded.
0: She loves she loves hydration. Clearly, right.
1: yeah, okay. very hydrated family. <laughs> well, Daniel, this has been a lot of fun. I think we've we've officially gone over on time, but you know, no big deal. Who nobody's listening at this point anyway in the podcast, so we could just say whatever. The world <laughs> is flat. <flying. laughs> all right, I said it. All right. Do
2: you right. have metrics that show you how far someone gets or how far people are getting?
1: We we well certain platforms give those, but yeah, I don't really follow that stuff very closely. Well, but, Daniel's um, a
0: Daniel's a listener.
1: I'm listening. Oh, you are. Well, what's your Whatever. favorite part of the podcast?
2: I, I think it's the beginning when you, the the guest gets to really talk about what they're there to talk about. Um,
1: <laughs> See, everybody doesn't listen to the end. Point proven.
2: I I listen to the end. I'm just yeah. you asked my favorite part.
1: Yeah. <laughs> You know, I find, because I talk to some people that listen sometimes, and it's a very polarizing thing. There's nerdery-only people, and then yeah. there's guest-only people. There's That's very few thinking. people that are full podcast folks. Like We've heard people say, I just skip to the nerdery, and then I say, "I hear people say, once I get to the nerdery, I just I quit listening.
0: Is is a hammock a chair? This is a, oh, yeah. a controversial a statement. No kidding.
2: Ooh, what kind of hammock are we talking here? Because there's a lot of different types of hammocks.
0: Hey man, like like John Wayne said, uh, I'm not responsible for what you understand, only for what I say. Whatever is, you want it uh, to be. Is, uh, is, a hot dog a
2: sandwich? Oh That's man, true.
1: this is Kinda. good podcast talk. This is
0: solid pod.
1: <laughs> that, is that a Hammet hot dog a sandwich? Isn't out yet, Scott. So he doesn't even know what we're talking about.
0: Well, uh, Daniel, I, I think I think this is exactly what we needed at the exact right time. So thank <laughs> thanks so much for coming on the pod. Oh, Thank yeah. you, Daniel. Real quick,
2: uh, shout out to my co-workers on the Promos and Sports Project. So Nick Koenig, Brandon Young, Colin Roth, and Robert Pritchard.
1: Awesome. Well, shout out. Daniel, you are amazing. Thanks for coming today. You've been listening to Direction to Correct, a PeopleLinex podcast with Colin Scott and Daniel Smerling.
0: Thanks, everybody. Thank you. As always, all opinions are owned and do not reflect those of any other organization. You've been listening to Directionally
1: Correct, a People Analytics podcast with Colin
0: Scott.